welcome to my mommy's podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Fabletics, my go-to source for quality, affordable athletic wear. This company was co-founded by Kate Hudson with a mission to bring trendy athletic wear to everyone at affordable prices. And here's how they do that. After you take a quick 60 second style quiz, they give you a personalized showroom of pieces that are specifically catered towards your own unique style. Right now, you can get two pairs of leggings for only $24. That's a $99 value and less than the price of a Lululemon sports bra, even secondhand on, at a website. So um, as a VIP, you can get all of that at fabletics.com forward slash wellness mama. And that includes my favorite, the high-waisted power hold leggings that are so flattering, even in places that I have a little bit of a bulge or loose skin from all of my pregnancies. Make sure you enter your email address at the end of the quiz because you will receive exclusive monthly discounts and sales, especially seasonal sales, and the inside scoop about new collections that haven't been released yet. Again, check out fabletics.com forward slash wellness mama. That's F-A-B-L-E-T. ICS.com forward slash wellness mama to grab the deal while you can and check out my favorite power hold leggings while they're still in stock as styles change monthly. This episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic, my source for superfood coffees, teas, and elixirs that contain powerhouse mushrooms for better performance, better sleep, and better health. I've been asked several times what the name means, and it's a cool story, so I wanted to tell you today. Basically, here's how it works. If you put all of the foods in the world on a scale from bad to good, um, many would fall in the middle as kind of average. The farther away you got on either direction from average, the more rare the food is and the more good or bad it is. So basically this would be measured in sigmas, the more sigmas it has. So as you get farther out, one sigma away, two, three, four, only 50 superfoods in the world qualify as four sigmas away from the average or four sigmatic. And these are the best of the best highest quality and these are the products that Four Sigmatic, thus the name, uses in their products. My favorites are the coffee with lion's mane in the morning, which has caffeine but less than most coffee so I can drink it without getting jittery and the lion's mane gives me focus and clarity that regular coffee doesn't. I drink the reishi elixir or the reishi cocoa at night to wind down and pretty much all of their other products in between, including the matcha, the cordyceps, the chaga, even um, they're different like superfood blends. I highly recommend all of it. I've never tried anything from them I didn't love. My kids love their cocoa and chai. And you can save 15% on any order from Four Sigmatic by using the code wellnessmama, all one word, all lowercase, at foursigmatic.com forward slash wellnessmama. So again, F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash wellnessmama. And make sure to use the code Wellness Mama to save 15%. Hello, and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com. And today's episode is a really fascinating one that goes in a different direction than mainly the physical health that we normally talk about on this podcast. I am here with Dr. Kelly Brogan, MD, who you have heard from before. Her first episode will be linked in the show notes here as well. It was fascinating talking about anxiety, depression, mental health, why she no longer prescribes medication, and so much more. But Kelly is a holistic, women, holistic women's health psychiatrist 
author of the New York Times bestselling book, A Mind of Your Own, the children's book, A Time for Rain, and co-editor of the landmark textbook, Integrative Therapies for Depression. She completed her psychiatric training and fellowship at NYU after graduating from Cornell, and she has a BS from MIT in systems neurosciences. She's board certified in psychiatry, psychosomatic medicine, and integrative holistic medicine, and is specialized in root cause resolution as an approach to psychiatric syndromes and symptoms. She's also a KRI certified kundalini yoga teacher and a, teacher and a mother of two. And in this conversation, she and I, but definitely her, get really vulnerable about life experiences and changes and something she calls a dark night of the soul that happens a couple times in our lifetime. So I hope that you will give this one a chance and listen in with an open mind and enjoy. Here we go. Kelly, welcome and thanks for being here. It's really, really such an honor. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I know I've had you on before and you were very well loved with the audience. I'll make sure that your first episode is linked in the show notes so you guys can find that at wellnessmama.fm if you have not heard round one with Dr. Brogan. But I wanted to have you back because I think, first of all, we could have literally talked for eight hours in that first episode and we weren't able to. Um, But also because I feel like there's just even more to talk about right now. Modern life just gets more intense and more busy and more everything. And I thought it was a perfect time to have you back on. And you also have a book, A Mind of Your Own. I want to make sure we talk about that today too. But one thing that you have written about and talked about on your own platform, you call the dark night of the soul. So I think let's just jump in with the hard stuff. And will you explain what that is and what that means to you? Absolutely. You know, I I think... It's, it's worth mentioning that I am a very conventionally trained doctor. I was a hardcore atheist. And all of the concepts I'm about to explore were totally anathema to me, like just eye roll beyond the eye roll and something I would dismiss because there wasn't evidence, there wasn't science. And, you know, spiritual folks can go to their ashrams and talk their gibberish if they want to. Like that's basically the kind of mindset that I was coming from when I essentially backed into learning about this very spiritually archetypal journey that can unfold usually at particular times in a given individual's life. And, and typically that would be like around adolescence or between like 35 and 45. Those tend to be very common um, windows, and I'm finding that the perimenopausal menopausal window is potentially a third one. And it's uh, something I've begun to learn about mostly because I elected to work with women who wanted to pursue another way of interacting with hardship or crisis or challenges than medication. And that means that either they were already on medication and it wasn't quote unquote, working, or they didn't feel totally themselves, or they were dealing with this chronic sense that something was missing, or they wanted to avoid medication, but felt like they were really kind of staring down the barrel of uh, a very acute circumstance in, in their life, you know, whether it was a death or loss or some kind of new diagnosis or um, something that was bringing out tremendous amount uh, of fear. And so in, in working with this population, I began to Uh, As I committed to, you know, since I put down my prescription pad, which at this point was amazingly around a decade ago, uh, I never started a patient on prescription medication again. And I have that, you know, it's um, (laughs) has a light side and a dark side, this trait of my personality, which is that, you know, when I commit to something, 
I, I commit hardcore. And I decided, you know, that under no circumstances was I going to start someone on, on a medication. That was really based on what I had learned after I decided to take another look into the literature and, you know, published that in, in a mind of your own in, in 2016, um, which I think was around when we spoke last amazingly. And since that time, I have, of course, had now several more years of experience seeing what it looks like when people choose this path. And it can look a way um, that is something like childbirth, right? So from the outside in, you're like, why, why don't you just get a C-section and be done with it, right? But from the insider's perspective, you know that you have, well, hopefully you know at this stage in our unfoldment, that you have a choice between you know, going on the journey to see what it's like um, to explore the energies of labor and transition and, you know, um, birthing that child through your body. Or you can, you know, do the best that you can, but you can opt to, you know, numb literally and figuratively the experience through, um, you know, analgesics or epidural, whatever you choose. So, the women that I work with have have kind of figuratively chosen the the unmedicated home birth, right? So they're saying like, I'm going in raw and whatever comes of it, I want to know, I want to see it. And I understand there are risks and I can't but choose this, right? I'm choosing this. And so what I've had the real privilege of you know, sort of acting as is, is something of a spiritual midwife because I, I really don't do much other than stay strong, calm, and really confident in their capacity to get through it. But what they're getting through is not the birth of a baby. It's, it's typically this, this birth of their more authentic self. And as kind of poetic as that sounds, I think most of us can relate to this idea that we, we wear various masks, right? And we, we go through life kind of constantly switching them depending on the context, especially women are so chameleon-like in this way. We know how to meet the needs and really please those around us um, in a way that, you know, most men aren't equipped with, right? So we're constantly shuffling these masks and there gets a point at which, you know, some of them start to drop and then you start to become aware that your actual face is never in contact with the world. So it's something, it's something like that where you, you have this opportunity to understand what you're made of, but that that opportunity asks of you a certain kind of death. Um, and so this has been written about, you know, by mystics and yogis and spoken about for probably millennia, this idea of, of moving through what is called the dark night of the soul. So this, this passage through which the false layers of yourself fall away and the, this tender but very, very real part of you um, is born. And it's born through, you know, through the fires, through this confrontation with um, the aspects of your defenses that served you for a while, right? So that can be control, knowing it all, being on top of things, you know, showing up for work and being a good girl, making sure the meal is on the table at 6 p.m., like all of the ways in which we have sort of whipped ourselves into shape so that we can feel like we are, are lovable, really. I mean, that's really what's going on. And then when we go through this passage, we, we really don't have access 
um, to those parts of ourselves necessarily. And instead we get to look at all of the parts of ourselves we didn't even want to know existed, let alone develop like real-time intimacy with. And so often in the dark night of the soul, you're confronted with tons of fear, sometimes rage, sometimes grief, right? And almost always shame. And it's this panoply of these emotions that literally can feel like it's going to kill us. They're just feelings, right? They're just emotional states and energies moving through, but it literally can feel like either it's going to kill us or maybe we'd rather be dead um, than, than feel this much inside us, right? Because we have no cultural um, context for having these dark parts right? That we label it, label as negative, having these dark parts and also being a good person. So it's like, it's like a way of really adultifying so that in the adult consciousness, you develop the capacity to be both good and bad, right? But then you also allow others to be that, right? So, so no longer do you see somebody as being totally wrong and you're totally right, or you're totally wrong and somebody else is totally perfect, right? That kind of splitting that black and white thinking is really a childlike mechanism that begins to be um, really remedied through this alchemical process. And you learn to hold all of these energies the same way when you're birthing you know, a baby without medical assistance, you learn that you're just the cauldron, you know, that the energies are moving through. You're not really, you're not growing that baby intentionally. You're not making that baby move to the right or the left or forward or back, you know, it's happening. There is something moving through you and you're just the container, right? You're holding that space and you're allowing this magic to happen within you to great yield, obviously. But on an emotional level, we really don't have a lot of exposure to what this looks like as a society because we're so busy chasing that oasis on the on the horizon, right? Finally, I'm going to have this day I wake up and I have no problems and I'm finally going to feel happy, right? And that's what drives consumerism and all of the money we spend to just finally feel okay. And of course, at a certain point in life, we see the bankruptcy of that. So it's it's really this opportunity, but it's, it's not for everyone. But you'll kind of know um, if you're being called to it. And I, I think more and more of us are being called to level up in this way. I'm curious how someone, how do we know if that, because some of the things you just said really actually resonated with where I am right now. And I'm curious, it's mainly women who are called to this. Can men have this kind of thing too, uh, in a different way? And how do you know if that's the thing that's happening for you versus just you're going through anxiety or you're going through something else that might be different? Yeah. So, you know, I've come to the perspective because I've seen the yield, right? So I had to see literally hundreds of women go through this process to see that it has stages to be able to hold that vision for them of what's on the other side, right? So it's like, again, the midwife in the room is holding the vision of that healthy baby in your arms uh, as you're you're saying, when is it going to be over, right? Like I can't do it another second, right? She's, she's holding that energy for you. And so I had to see that on the other side of this process, the women that I work with, you know, in my practice, you know, they became in touch with their gifts, um, and there are many, many poets who have spoken to this concept that, you know, the wound is where the light comes in or, or that there's the gem in the dragon's mouth. You know, this is a, this is an ancient, um, reality. It's just one we've been running from, right? So 
I'm of the perspective now, since I've seen them come out and become, you know, the artists they've always been, or to set up, you know, some beautiful service and philanthropic based, you know, conscious business or to become a healer and, you know, all one after another, after another, inviting prosperity into their life, just because they, they chose to really go through this refining process. And, you know, sometimes what comes with it is a rearrangement of relationships or, you know, having the, the courage to quit a job or to move out of their state or whatever it is, there's natural changes that come with, with, um, the reclamation of this kind of power but it's led me to believe that actually any symptom has in it a little invitation. So it could be a, a big invitation or a small invitation, right? Like if it's a, a tumor sticking out of your breast, that's going to be a big invitation. Why? Because it's going to bring up a tremendous amount of fear and the potential for you to really abandon your own body and to see it as something to be managed, as something that makes mistakes. Um rather than the expression of something going on inside that's actually meaningful, right? So if it's a small invitation, it could be that you have some insomnia or you, you're getting headaches, you know, before the onset of your period, or maybe even you stubbed your toe and now you can't go to, you know, dance class or whatever it is. Um, if we can orient towards these experiences of discomfort fear or suffering when it has to do with our our body and our mind, um, our emotional, you know, sort of the emotional realm within, if we can orient really towards ourselves with curiosity first as a first reflex rather than control as a first reflex, then we'll often be guided towards something that will help us understand ourselves better. But this concept of self-discovery really isn't really isn't relevant to allopathic medicine, right? Like when I was in medical school or my, you know, extensive training, that, that, that idea, even in psychiatry, believe it or not, it's just not a concept that seems to hold any water. And so what's interesting is that I think it's what's most important to us, right? We, that's why there are quizzes all over the internet and, and have been, you know, since Cosmo magazine, when I was in like high school, we want to know more about ourselves. Like we want to tap into that mystery. And it's just that I think we were, we were taught that the way to know more about yourself is to get it together and to feel more in control. But something is shifting where I think as a collective, we're beginning to say, no, that's not actually what self-ownership is about, right? That self-ownership actually is about owning all of your stuff, right? All of it from, from the bad to the good to the in-between. And it's kind of like if you, if you have two people in front of you and one is like pretending to have everything together and to be in control and the other is just kind of owning the fact that they don't, like who are you going to feel more comfortable around? It's that authenticity meter that is extremely sensitive, I think, in, in all of us right now. And so, you know, you asked, is it just women who go through this? You know, I can obviously only speak from my experience as as a woman and, and a practice of women. But what's interesting is that since bringing my, you know, offerings online and scaling them to men and women, I've seen that this is actually a very human process, um, and it's a kind of self initiation. And you know, if you look to indigenous cultures, you you'll see that whether it's prizing, you know, childbirth and the ritual of that 
or whether it's, you know, a vision quest where, you know, you're left out in the woods for three days without food or water, this concept of bringing you to the brink of what you thought were your limitations and experientially showing yourself that you can move through them is a part of how you become an adult. And I think that's kind of what we're all contending with is that we are like in ways emotional children, like running around in adult clothing. And then we wonder why we don't feel authentic and we wonder why we're struggling with imposter syndrome and, and why we, we can't ever find that, that experience of peace. And as so many that I work with describe, it's like a feeling of just like finally being themselves, right? Like finally feeling comfortable in their own skin. So it strikes me that, you know, this is the portal. It's, it's moving through what you might otherwise want to run away from. And again, that could be a small little thing or, or a very big thing that takes tremendous courage to face. But, you know, it's only in, in exploring these things and coming to them with some curiosity and understanding their meaning that you can sort of find the the gem and the you know what i often say is like this idea that suffering ends where meaning begins and i really have found it to be true that that suffering can dissolve in a moment if you tell yourself a different story and so in my new book in own yourself that's that's pretty much what i am trying to teach is like how do you tell yourself a different story when society and the dominant american culture that's you know invaded the world, um, is telling a different story about your experience of your, you know, emotional, uh, realms again, whether that's, you know, having tremendous fears that have been labeled as OCD or visions that have been labeled as schizophrenia or suicidal depression, or, you know, tremendous energy that's labeled as mania, whatever it is, society is telling you, this is a problem. It doesn't work. It's not controllable through your own choices. And so the only way for you to manage this is, is through medication because something's wrong with you. And can we tell a different story? And what happens when we do? And what I found is when we tell a different story about what's happening and we, we see it as an invitation to personal empowerment, growth, and development, then incredible things can emerge right but we have to start to grow this field you know so to speak as as a collective because um there's there's only very few people the world over who are walking this path right now but i i do have faith that it's it's more and more um and that's obviously why i'm so pleased to be having this conversation you know to begin to grow that field bigger and bigger so that it can hold each and every one of us as we as we make our choices I really love that quote that you just said, that suffering ends where meaning begins. And I think that's also a perfect corollary to childbirth because that suffering that you feel that like seems so intense and impossible, the second you have your baby, it all has meaning and you almost forget. Um, And I think that's a beautiful analogy to use there. And I'm curious because, like I said, so much of what you're saying really resonated to me and so much of what's in your new book really resonated with me. And I've my own process the last couple of years has been realizing that you can have diet dialed in and lifestyle dialed in and do the exercise and the sleep and all the things perfectly. And if you don't deal with your emotions, you still will have roadblocks. Um, and it can be big ones. But yet, I feel like I've been on that struggle of how do you actually find the path forward? Because it seems very different for everyone. And I know at least in my case, there were all these expectations and guilt and things I was supposed to do. And how you mentioned like always needing to be there for everyone else and to do all the things for everyone 
everyone else. So um, I guess the two-part question would be if you're comfortable sharing a little of what your own journey through that process has been, and then how do you find a starting point? I love this. And you know what? I think we're all in it. Um, we're all in it in, a, in our own way. And certainly some of us are in way deeper than others, right? So some of the women that I work with clinically, you know, what they go through, especially coming off of these medications, I mean, all I, it's all I can do to reflect to them that they are the heroines of our time. You know, the amount of courage that it takes to go into the darkness that comes up when you have sometimes 30 years of unexplored emotional territory you know, that you're slammed with like a tidal wave when you come off of an antidepressant after all that time, right? Because I do believe in in what the science of psychoneuroimmunology is showing us, which is that emotions, you know, do get encoded as as peptides. And this was Candace Pert's work, you know, from decades ago. And they they get stored in our body, right? So you can believe, you know, on a, a spiritual level that it's energy that gets stuck somewhere, or you can just honestly default to neuroscience and, and understand that there's a reality to this. And so it's in there, right? And it could be in there for decades. Um, so how are you going to move it, right? How are you going to liberate that? Um, how are you going to keep that ex- from expressing as, as cancer? And, you know, it's, what's interesting, uh, based on what you're describing that I can so relate to is that, you know, I've had about like five or so years of very unexpected challenges come to my life, whether it was, you know, falling madly in love with my current partner, Sayer, um, you know, when I was happily married whether it was what it is to dissolve a family as somebody who was very invested in her, you know, postcard sort of, you know, life and the role that I played in my own family, you know, with my parents and my brother and all of the challenges that came up when I stopped playing the part I had unconsciously agreed to play, you know. And then of course, you know, as an activist, all of what has come up in terms of really beginning to see the the truth of Nietzsche's quote, which is, you know, basically about becoming the monster you're fighting. You know, I, be, I began, that happened. Um, and in, I not only happened to me, but I began to see it happening to many other activists um, who particularly in the sort of like pharmaceutical awareness realm, who really were suffering and struggling. And, you know, I was like crying myself to sleep and it took a while for me to say, you know what, this can't be the way out. You know, that, that it's, we're fighting war with, with war and, you know, hate with hate. And how, how is this going to ever get us anywhere? It's very hopelessness inducing. And so, you know, finally I got to the point where I decided to design my own life and actually understand what my desires were and my needs were and to stop acting as if, you know, I was living a life based on what I quote unquote, like had to do right on a, on a professional level or uh, familial level or whatever, even for my children, to be honest. And so I decided to make choices, right? Make bold choices. And I, you know, I relocated, um, to Florida to be closer to my partner and brought my kids. And then my ex-husband chose to come and my parents chose to come and things started to kind of flow once I asserted my own, um, desire And what was interesting is, you know, here I designed my perfect life. I'm exactly where I want to be in the world. And wherever you go, there you are, right? So I have this like beautiful schedule. I'm in this beautiful place. My body feels like in heaven. 
And, you know, I Marie Kondo my house and it's like, feels so wonderful. And, and here I am in a constant state of like vigilance and worry and detachment and feeling like I'm living my life behind like a glass, you know, and all of these moments that seem like they should feel so good. I can't access that range of feeling. And so it really was like in the past year or so that I've developed a lot of the, um, skills that I knew about from my patients, right, were necessary, but I didn't necessarily have a lived experience of. And, you know, so I'll, I'll tell you what I think a couple of the, the tips are, although this is largely what I, you know, I put in, in this book, Own Yourself, was like, I'm very, uh, like, pragmatic person, right? So if, if something's challenging, I want to know, like, what are the best, give me some road signs, right? Like, give me some navigational um, tools, and so I've, I've tried to include as many of those as, as possible. But one of the things that I, I find is something important to commit to and begin to practice like mental hygiene around is where are you telling what I call victim stories, right? So where is there a narrative in your life? And usually this is relational, like in a dynamic with a spouse or parent or sometimes a kid or a boss where are you holding a narrative that features you as the one who's right about being wronged, right? So, so we all have these. No shame in the game. We all have them. Some of us hide them better than others, like I would be in that camp. Um, but there are going to be places where you're telling yourself a story about your life that, that features you as being um, dependent and without power. And anytime you have that kind of story, there is a little piece of you that is constantly churning that, you know, constantly maintaining that. And it's like an incredible energy drain, right? And so one of the antidotes to that is to begin to see where you have participated willfully. Like where have you made a choice to participate in a dynamic that you are feeling victimized by, right? And so, you know, when it comes to taking medications, right? It's really important for the women I work with to be able to say, I chose that. I chose that because it was the best I could do with the information I had at the time. And now I'm going to choose something different, right? But it can even be like, you know, an interaction where you feel you know, like affronted, like I, you know, I had this interaction with my mom, for example, and, and every part of me was like, oh, I'm over it. It's fine. And it took me basically understanding how I didn't, um, show her in any way, the compassion that I expected her to show me. Right. For me, it's like almost feels like blaming the victim, but it's actually a strategy to begin to take back control. It's hard. It's hard work because you feel vulnerable and that's why you have that story to defend yourself right? But it's a method of regaining control and it's surprisingly liberating. It's kind of like when you engage in service or volunteering or philanthropy, it's like, why would that feel good? Because if, if you give money, let's say to somebody else, well, then you have less, but uh, we all know that's not how it works, right? There's, there's something around resolving these little points of, of victimhood that is extraordinarily um, liberating. And then I would say another one is, is to just begin to engage relating to your triggers 
from a different angle, right? So I think this concept of triggers is like entering in the zeitgeist. And all that that means is like, there are things that really like get you going, like that charge you up and not in a good way, right? So, so like you and I can both be online at the bank and the teller can step away and put her little, little sign up that says she's going for lunch. And you may be like, all right, I'll come back later. And I could literally have like an adult temper tantrum about it, right? And make a big scene. So there are different things that trip our wires. And there are good reasons for that based on our childhood programming and particular traumas, et cetera. But you can relate to it by championing that as your you know, kind of battle cry that you're going to get behind, that you're going to tell your friends and try and garner more support for that. Or you can understand, okay, this is like my, what I call the child self, right? This is my child self behind the curtain at Oz, pulling all the strings and making some big, you know, spooky wizard sounds. But the truth is, it's just a little kid behind that curtain. So there's, you know, a visualization that I practice with my patients and, and online participants where it's basically, you just kind of turn toward it as if it's, like a little kid. So hopefully same gen- gendered kid you can relate to, right? So it's like, you know, I have two daughters, so this is a decently easy exercise for me where I basically can imagine that I'm turning towards someone inside me who is a little girl, who is the one having the tantrum. And you just kind of like practice soothing that that little thing, right? You practice soothing that little kid. And it's very simple. You're not fixing it for her. You're not making it better. You're just saying, wow, so angry right now. That seems really intense. I'm so sorry. Something like that, right? And it sounds really ridiculous. This is what I do in my crisis moments. This is literally the exercise that I do when I am pushed to the brink, you know, again, whether it's by my partner or by some piece of legislation that's come across, you know, state lines. Um, this is this is how I am learning to relate to myself from an adult consciousness. And it's just kind of a way to develop um, the witness mind, right? And and neurobiologically, this has a correlate. When you have the develop the capacity to watch yourself have an experience the way that that impacts your nervous system is totally different than if you are totally fused with the experience and you are flailing around in in fight or flight. So it's there are these kind of little ways to begin to interact with yourself so that you're no longer trying to arrange all of the furniture in the room perfectly, you know, turn on the music, make sure the candles are lit, but then you have like that screaming tantruming toddler inside of you, you know, it's like locked in a room, bolted doors and screaming. And you're like, well, why doesn't it feel comfortable in here? That's so strange. I made everything look so nice. That's kind of where we're all at. And so I think we need to develop, you know, these, these practices of relating to ourselves through our stories, you know, that we tell ourselves. And one of them is that feeling upset is something to fix, you know, rather than something to explore or, or even soothe. And so, you know, we can start with this very basic premise that we're all, we're all kind of doing this work. Like we're all kind of beginning um, to understand that there is an inside job being asked of us. And why do you think right now there's so, it seems like, because so much of what you're saying I see in myself, I see in my friends, uh, I just in society. Why do you think we're seeing this so much right now? Yeah, it's a great question. 
you know, at the risk of sounding kind of metaphysical, um, I believe that we are alive at a really, really, really fascinating time in human history. And remember, I used to cry myself to sleep about having brought children into this world, you know, because I was focused on the fluoride and the water and the glyphosate and, you know, the pharmaceuticals and everything, you name it, greenwashing products and, you know, all the things I know that you are passionate about as well. And I just couldn't see how we were ever going to fix it. Right. And, and so I thought, well, this is a, is a life bereft of anything beautiful. And why did I have children? Like that's literally was how I felt for, for several years. And now I have a different perspective because as I commit more and more to this notion that there is a design and there is an order um, and there is a, an intelligence to all that is, as I begin to explore more deeply this idea that everything um, has an energetic signature interacting with everything else and that there is a this holofractal expression, like from the littlest, littlest thing to the biggest, biggest system, the, the complexity is maintained, right? And, and it's an incredible reality to begin to inhabit. I think that we are actually on the brink of like a dimensional upgrade, you know, on, on this planet. And we're in this, this phase of transition. And I think that's why so many of us who are very sensitive um, are being called to level up our strength and being called almost like a kind of deeper, you know, spiritual training camp or something um, to begin to grow our capacity to allow this storm that is brewing to just exist and then turn it into something beautiful. Um, like it's real alchemy, right? And so how do we know that we're in this transition? Well, one of the signs is that the system that has served our expansion and development for many centuries, which could be called a system of control or um, a system of force, right? So you see that through our you know, our legal system, our educational system, our agricultural system, our medical system, our political systems, they're all based on this notion that wherever there is aberrance or unruliness or anything that is outside of the lines, it should be met with increasing amounts of force, right? That's why you go from you know, six vaccines to 72 vaccines. That's, you know, why we have, you know, go from one uh, chemical pesticide to 12 in a concoction or, you know, it's, it's this always neglect of the source and root of the problem with the, you know, increasing application of more of the same in an effort to finally subdue it. Right. And of course we have this in our, our school systems as, as well, um, educational systems. How do we, you know, finally um, subdue every last child. And we're seeing that it's just not working. It's no longer working. And it did for a while. And now it's not. And so this, this bankruptcy, you know, of, a, of the system is something that we all feel. And even if we pretend to defend the status quo, like on some level, we're all kind of winking to each other and being like, we know there's got to be a sea change coming, right? Like we know we have to do things differently. We all feel it. And that sense of 
what wasn't, you know, what, what was working now isn't, we're all feeling on an individual level as well, because that's how it works, right? These systems are uh, uh, expressions of our individual consciousness and the level of consciousness at which we're all operating. So it's like what we are feeling as individuals is exactly that. Well, my defense has worked for for a good long time, right? I just make sure I show up on time and I do what I'm told and I'm polite and I respond to emails in a timely fashion and I make a lot of money and I get this award, whatever it is. And that kind of works for a while until you start to feel the rattling of the cage and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, it's not working anymore, right? And so I think that's really where we find ourselves is in this transition um, to this new territory, this new never before existent way of being that is going to come from the rubble of our current, you know, dominant paradigm. And it's happening. Like it's happening at, at a tremendous rate where levels of awareness um, and totally creative novel solutions are are emerging. You know, I mean, even when it comes to, you know, censorship or, you know, what's happening to many of us um, in, in Google, right? So like this idea that it, they have that they know what's true and right, and they're going to limit and, and you know, control our access to what they believe is bad, which happens to include, you know, anything from natural health to, you know, right-wing um, politics to pedophilia, you know? So it's like this bucket where all the bad stuff goes and they're just going to control, you know, exposure to the bad stuff. Right. So they're going to censor out all of those who don't meet their criteria. Well, what's already happening is that something really new and interesting is going to be born from that, right? Because you cannot live in a world where the bad is fully controlled. And I think that's what on an individual level, and of course, in, in my work, what I'm seeking you know, to, to support is this idea that we move beyond the bad and the good, right? That we begin to understand that it's, it's all everything, right? So I've had to sit with people who, who I've deemed as you know, seeming enemies, whether it's in the pharmaceutical industry or, or wherever else. And I've had to, for my own, for my own benefit, really ask the question, you know what, like, what would I do if I were them? I would probably do the same thing they're doing, right? If I had the totality of their experience, if I had all of their exposures and all of their indoctrinations and all of their choices, I, I would probably be making the same exact decision that they're making. So how can we begin to, on a small level and a big level, say, I accept what is, you know, I have compassion for how we've gotten ourselves here and let's create something more beautiful. And so that's been, you know, uh, a part of the shift in my rallying cry, which is to no longer be like fighting, right? Uh, what I don't want to be, and certainly not unless I have something more beautiful to, to offer. I love that so much. And I think it's good perspective. And for anybody who's not familiar, I'll just give you a little bit of background about what Kelly, what you're talking about with Google, which is that um, over the last year, but especially in the last few months, there've been a series of updates that have essentially like removed all visibility and traffic to sites that don't agree with certain positions in Google. And on the one hand, Google is a private company or they are a company and they can choose to do that. They're not a public utility. We have no right to rank there, um, but it is incredibly frustrating. And not just for those of us who that's our income and our livelihood, but a friend of mine put it the other day. She's like, if 
this had happened five years ago, I would be dead because I wouldn't have found the information that let me figure out how to save my own life when I was sick. And so that's kind of what we're dealing with. But I love, love, love your perspective on this because that's one thing I've said so much in the last two years is that we as a society have to get to a point where we can start conversations with that basis of, I might totally disagree with you, but I still can love you and respect you. And let's have a constructive conversation. Because if not, if we're just escalating the anger, we are leaving a terrible legacy for our kids of just anger and fighting. So I love that. Do you have any strategies for like helping people to bridge that gap and to start those conversations? I think, um, you know, somebody who's helped me so much in this regard is Byron Katie. And she's, she is, um, I guess it's, I don't know how she would characterize herself, but she's a teacher and um, on on the global scene and has been for many decades. And she has this kind of like set of four questions that you you apply to any statement or belief that's causing you distress, right? So, you know, so it might be um, Google should let me be who I am. <laughs> Whatever, just to be like, whatever, to put something out there. And one of the strategies that she offers to resolve judgment, because it's the judgment and the fighting with what is that causes suffering. That's it. It's not the reality. It's the story that we are telling about the reality that causes suffering and it's commiserate, right? That means suffer together. We are always seeking that connection. So we'll connect through suffering, right? So that's how you spread it, right? You kind of pass the buck. So one of the the strategies that she offers, I I find extraordinarily helpful is called, um, so there's these four questions you go through, you ask if the statement is really true, right? And then you take a look at how you feel when you believe the statement versus when you don't. And you can see that it's the statement that's actually causing the suffering, not the reality. And then the one that's most helpful, I think, is called the turnaround, which is you literally 180 degree the sentence. And so like in this case, it would be, I should let Google be who they are, right? And isn't that kind of true? It's always kind of a stunning thing that you see, you know, whether it's, you know, my boyfriend should do the dishes. And then you're like, well, my boyfriend shouldn't do the dishes, right? How do you know? Because he's not doing the dishes, so he shouldn't do them, right? Or or maybe I should do the dishes. And that makes a lot of sense because I'm the one who wants them done. Maybe I, Maybe I should do the dishes, right? So it's like you get to this place of access to what is and you feel melt away the part of you that was really working to uphold your story of suffering. And I, I find that to be like a very, very helpful strategy. So just kind of like flip it, you know, and see, is there any truth in that? Maybe there's not in some cases, but I found almost every time I feel a judgment about something that I don't like how something is, which trust me is like 80% of my day sometimes, right? That if I can apply that, mindset and say, well, you know, maybe I'm the one who needs my own advice. It's almost always true. There's almost always some, some truth in it. And it helps me to see, wow, I'm just treating that person or, you know, that issue exactly the way I would prefer not to be treated. How is that fair? Right. And so it's just a, a way to calibrate around kind of being, you know, being the change that you want to see. 
I love that. I would never have thought to turn it on its head like that, but it makes so much sense. This podcast is sponsored by Fabletics, my go-to source for quality, affordable athletic wear. This company was co-founded by Kate Hudson with a mission to bring trendy athletic wear to everyone at affordable prices. And here's how they do that. After you take a quick 60 second style quiz, they give you a personalized showroom of pieces that are specifically catered towards your own unique style. Right now, you can get two pairs of leggings for only $24. That's a $99 value and less than the price of a Lululemon sports bra, even secondhand on, at a website. So um, as a VIP, you can get all of that at fabletics.com forward slash wellness mama. And that includes my favorite, the high-waisted power hold leggings that are so flattering, even in places that I have a little bit of a bulge or loose skin from all of my pregnancies. Make sure you enter your email address at the end of the quiz because you will receive exclusive monthly discounts and sales, especially seasonal sales, and the inside scoop about new collections that haven't been released yet. Again, check out fabletics.com forward slash wellness mama. That's F-A-B-L-E-T ics.com forward slash wellness mama to grab the deal while you can and check out my favorite power hold leggings while they're still in stock as styles change monthly. This episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic, my source for superfood coffees, teas, and elixirs that contain powerhouse mushrooms for better performance, better sleep, and better health. I've been asked several times what the name means, and it's a cool story, so I wanted to tell you today. Basically, here's how it works. If you put all of the foods in the world on a scale from bad to good, um, many would fall in the middle as kind of average. The farther away you got on either direction from average, the more rare the food is and the more good or bad it is. So basically this would be measured in sigmas, the more sigmas it has. So as you get farther out, one sigma away, two, three, four, only 50 superfoods in the world qualify as four sigmas away from the average or four sigmatic. And these are the best of the best highest quality and these are the products that Four Sigmatic, that's the name, uses in their products. My favorites are the coffee with lion's mane in the morning, which has caffeine but less than most coffee so I can drink it without getting jittery and the lion's mane gives me focus and clarity that regular coffee doesn't. I drink the reishi elixir or the reishi cocoa at night to wind down and pretty much all of their other products in between, including the matcha, the cordyceps, the chaga, even um, they're different like superfood blends. I highly recommend all of it. I've never tried anything from them I didn't love. My kids love their cocoa and chai. And you can save 15% on any order from Four Sigmatic by using the code wellnessmama, all one word, all lowercase, at foursigmatic.com forward slash wellnessmama. So again, F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash wellnessmama. And make sure to use the code wellness mama to save 15%. What about with kids? Because I know you have children as well. And obviously as moms, we all want to do the best for our kids and leave the best for our kids that we can. Um, with these shifts happening in you, have you has that changed your parenting or do you have any tools that can be useful for parents in helping kids walk through? Because you mentioned this also sometimes happens at puberty. So as a mom who's about to have a teenager, I'm curious, are there tools that we can use with our children? Oh, yes. Thank you for asking. This has been a huge, huge part of, right? Because I, I used to think that I was like, you know, fighting all the, the demons out there um, for my kids. And meanwhile, I was like traveling constantly, never around for them. Even when I was around, I wasn't present. And 
I wasn't there in my feminine power. And as I've begun this process of healing that I've also, you know, witnessed so many have, and I've witnessed, you know, all of these hundreds of, of individuals move through of really coming in contact with my softer, more vulnerable parts and exploring aspects of myself that I had, you know, thought I'd be stronger without, I have seen my children transform. Right. And so I'm a big believer that our children express our unconscious or semi-conscious conflicts and issues um, as parents. I know that's not a very popular perspective, but it, it's it's one that keeps me sort of in integrity uh, without seeing my kids as having like their own weird problems that have nothing to do with me. And I've seen, you know, anything from you know, funny little um, health things like frequent peeing or something. I've started to see that that is responsive to my shifts in energetic commitment. And part of part of what I have dedicated myself to offering them is to no longer. Or, it's the same thing I offer my patients, right? So, so to just orient around them as if their feelings matter. <laughs> and as if their feelings, you know, deserve airtime and are not an inconvenience or worse or something scary to me. Um, and it has, has transformed our family. And so, you know, I'll give you a quick example. So when we moved, right, it was this extremely challenging window for me on a million levels, not to mention just logistically. So we get here and we're, I don't know what, two, three months into to being here and I have my my kids set up at this extraordinary Waldorf school, and it just feels like so many things are coming into alignment. And my my little one, who is seven at the time, we're going to bed, and every mother knows <laughs> that that is the time, right, where where the veil is thin. And so we're laying in the dark, and she just starts crying, like pretty much out of nowhere, right? And she's like. I want to go back home, meaning up north, right? I want to go back home. I don't like it here. I don't like school. I don't like my friends and I don't want to be here. And you never asked my opinion about whether we could come here. And meanwhile, <laughs> my blood is like literally boiling because not only is my inner lawyer like that is inaccurate and you do have friends here and you do like it here. I saw you laughing the other day, you know, like it's not only is that going on. But then it's also my inner child, right? So my child self is having her own tantrum because she's like, but I worked so hard and I'm trying to keep it together. And how dare you, you know, not appreciate what I'm doing. Like all this, like there's like multiple kids in the room. Okay. <laughs> and so in that moment, because of this commitment to growing big enough to simply allow emotions some airtime. Okay, because I am an adult now and I'm going to choose to act like an adult, which is not to say that I'm going to act like I have it all together. It's simply to say that I'm going to trust that I can handle this emotionally, right? And so in that moment, something inside me recommitted. And even though I literally almost had to lift my arm up to put it on her back, I put my hand on her back and I just kind of rubbed her back and I let her cry. And I didn't say anything for a long time. And then the only thing I said was, this is really hard. 
that's it, right? Like the way you talk to somebody who's in, in distress is simple, like monosyllabic, two words, three word sentences. And she cried probably for another, I don't know, three minutes. Then she got up, she got a tissue and she blew her nose and like made a joke about how she sounded like an elephant, got back into bed and went to sleep. So that, that to me was like a felt experience of these teachings where if you simply are co-present and open to allowing your child agency in their own emo- emotional life, where you don't tell them how to feel, you don't try to control their experience, and you certainly don't attend to your inner child over them, right? Where, where you give her airtime and let her try to be right, you know, as we all are want to do, that there is an arc to these emotions. And it's like this, this audacious act of courageous parenting to simply allow for your child's experience to have airtime, right? And so obviously in adolescence, the tumult that can pass through the power that they are learning how to wield because these emotions are also the same as our gifts, as our power. They are at the root, right? It's, it's again, that becoming these alchemists, like how do you turn pain into joy? How do you turn grief into, you know, ecstasy? This is something we're all capable of. And no one necessarily can teach that, but we can give their you know, um, experience wide birth while also showing that we can handle it. Cause I used to think as a parent, like, you know, I'm breaking, you know, cycles of yelling and that kind of thing in, in, in many, many uh, generations of my family. So I never yelled at my kids, but what, what I would do when I couldn't handle it was just kind of like walk out of the room. Right. So if they were like expressing something I didn't want to hear, or they were crying about something I didn't want to deal with, like I would just kind of like walk out, but that's, I now understand just another way of telling them and showing them like what you're experiencing, I don't like, I don't approve of, and I can't handle it moreover, right? So what is it to be in the presence of an adult who can't handle your emotions, right? What does that tell you about your emotions? That they, that they induce abandonment, right? They induce detachment. Um, they make you isolated. So that's kind of how the messaging starts. Like it's like, Stop crying, little Jimmy. You know, it like starts. It starts early, um, and is perpetuated, and then of course taken on culturally, uh, where we make no room as a society for people to, you know, even grieve. I mean, now it's literally been edited in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the fifth iteration of it, where the bereavement clause has been lifted, so that if you're experiencing the symptoms of depression, two weeks after a loved one has passed, you are now a candidate for a mental illness diagnosis and chemical treatment. This is the direction that we're moving in where we literally have no capacity to allow people to move through their process, however that might look, and to simply, you know, support them, to show them, you know, we're not going to flee <laughs> as a society or as a, as a parent. Wow, that's amazing that only like two weeks later that would be, and I know that you don't prescribe at all anymore, but I feel like it maybe is a symptom of this or just with everything going on in modern life, anxiety and depression still are so much on the rise. And especially for women, like those are just two things I hear so often from readers and about. So I'm curious in light of all of this new information in your new book, 
Um, do you have any updated advice or starting point that you would give to someone working through anxiety or depression right now? Yeah. So again, we want to contextualize it, right? So Krishnamurti said, it's no sign of health to be well adapted to a profoundly sick society, right? So when we talked earlier, I talked earlier about this bankruptcy we're all feeling, right? We are out of our greatest expression where we are out of alignment. And there are going to be many of us, I call them the canaries in the coal mine, who feel that, right? And we label it anxiety or depression. And of course, then the individual gets the message something is wrong with them and they have this chemical imbalance and they're going to have it for life. And of course, they need to be treated, right? Their, their sickness needs to be treated. Well, I'd like to throw that on its head, right? And to say, no, actually, these are the individuals who are sensing what is really amiss, right? So whether that's you know, what it is to live a diet of processed food, what it is to have toxicant exposure, you know, what it is to live a purposeless life where you show up to some stupid job that offers your soul not a modicum of connection to what it is that you're here for, right? Or what it is to be in a toxic relationship, right? So if you're someone who is sensitive to those things, then you need help getting into alignment so that you feel well again. But it doesn't mean anything was ever wrong with you, right? That's like saying like the, the fire alarm is too noisy or something, should be quieter. No, it's, it's detecting something real and how you attend to it and with what energy you attend to it, that's where your choice lies. So I am passionate about, you know, getting, it's like I see myself as a gatekeeper, right? Like getting in the, in between those who are on the precipice of labeling themselves as sick or broken, and offering this other framework, right? And, and so, you know, in the book, I lay it out in three parts. It's it's get real, get well, get free. And the get real part is is a kind of rebrainwashing, right? So, so we've been told this certain story about suffering and sadness and struggle, and and is there another one, right? Can we tell a different story, right? And and then it's sort of you know how do we begin to enter? Is there an order of operations? And from my perspective, and I know there are many different ways to heal, of course, but from my perspective, it's it's worked in ways that have been literally history making um, in my in my clinical experience to start with kind of the lowest hanging fruit. So you start with a month of sending your nervous system a very different signal of safety than you had previously been even through your best efforts to be well, right? So you dedicate yourself to, it's about like two and a half hours of self-care a day that is basically, you know, diet. So it's it's cleaning up your diet. It's detox in the form of um, coffee enemas that my mentor taught me about. And then it's sending this relaxation response, um, activating signal through Ba very basic meditation, but every single day. So the commitment is the most important part. It's like a no nonsense, no excuses, like go big or go home 30 days. And I found that the this is almost like a portal. Like you go through this portal and then your, your magic carpet ride begins. And I've seen this literally hundreds of times. So I know it has a certain, you know, way of unfolding. And I think it has to do with recentering the locus of control within you. And that this simple, you know, 30 day ritual is just a way to do that. Because when you feel that you have, 
this creative power, when you feel that the control is within you, right, to make choices, because we always have, sorry, like our, our secret weapon, we always have the capacity to make choices. No one can take that from us. Even, you know, in the health freedom realms where we're so, or I'll speak for myself, I'm so worried about these choices being taken from us, right? In the end, we always retain choices. Even as Viktor Frankl said, who is in the Holocaust, you know, it's our choice to respond, you know, how are we going to respond? We always have that choice, right? So as you localize that within you, neurobiologically, something shifts, something different begins to happen because when you're in a helpless dependent state, there's a certain neurobiological signature that is attuned with fight or flight and not regeneration. So as you shift that, your mindset shifts, you're more able to engage curiosity. You're more able to look at the parts and aspects of your life that are not working with a renewed sense of, okay, so how am I going to take one small step in another direction, right? And things begin to unfold where you you feel empowered. So that's like a big, big part of what I, I try to help people with is, again, how do we reframe, even down to our language, how do we reframe what we're expressing through a lens of personal empowerment and responsibility, instead of through, you know, the lens of, of the hapless victim. And then, you know, in the last part of the book, I present strategies for, you know, deeper awakening to self and to, you know, sort of other mystical realms, et cetera, if that is relevant. And, and interestingly, it seems to become relevant um, at some point to most people on the path where they at least want to know, you know, what, what's the deal with these tools? You know, what's the deal with psychedelics? What's the deal with, you know, silent meditation or deep practices of these kinds. And, and it becomes this incredible, mysterious journey, you know, that, that you finally awaken to the fact that you've been on the whole time. That's beautiful. And I think, I can't believe our time again, it has once by just flown by, um, but I think that's a perfect place to start to wrap up. And I would love to know, I think I might've asked you this on our first episode, but um, other than your own, which of course will be linked in the show notes, if there's a book or books that have really impacted your life and if so, what they are and why. Oh yeah. Gosh, there's so many. So I'm a huge bibliophile. Um, and I've had this experience where I, I get the exact book I need at the exact moment I need it. You know, sometimes I'll even like read a page of a book that I absolutely needed to read before the patient I had at 1130, you know? So I've, I've had this very open channel, um, of taking in the teachings of, of many wise people who've walked before me and so I would certainly say that Anatomy of an Epidemic, I probably mentioned that last time too, but it changed my life. You know, I read it in 2010. Um, it's written by investigative journalist Robert Whitaker, and I never wrote a prescription again. So, you know, I think that, I think that qualifies as a, a life-changing um, book. And it's because I came to all of this through the portal of science. So I couldn't have been convinced otherwise. Um, I needed to know that there was a path paved with research um, to lead me away from this specialty that I had invested blood, sweat, tears, and $200,000 of debt, you know, into. I needed to know that I was, you know, walking the path of scientific integrity. So certainly, certainly that one. I would say another one is um, my friend Charles Eisenstein's book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. And a patient actually told me about that book and he's since become, you know, a dear friend of mine, but that book helped me to shift as an activist. Um, but it's not just for activists. It's for anyone who wants change, right? Who wants to see change on this planet. It's an incredible example of, 
not example, it's like an incredible, almost like a offering, you know, to inspire that shift from fighting, right? From the, the warfare that can underpin even the most sacred intentions to shifting into acceptance and a different way of contributing your signature to the change making that has to do with connecting, you know, in your heart, literally, to what it is that you want more of on this planet, right? And then embodying that as a very different way of, of relating to change making than I had ever heard of. And, and so I think that that's um, another really, really powerful one. And then actually, I only read this book like somewhat um, recently in my life, but actually I listened to it many, many, many hours. Um, Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh would probably be another one. And, you know, for most of my life, I never would have picked up a book that had the word God in it, literally. Uh, So closed I was to this concept. And, you know, for those, I think it's very well known at this point, but for those who hadn't heard of it, um, this is literally a, a transcribed conversation that this totally normal guy, you know, had um, in this like quasi altered state, you know, not induced by anything in particular um, in his house where he got to ask any questions he wanted. And what, you know, is transcribed explains everything from, you know, health to, you know, politics to how do we relate to how hard it is to be a human being. Uh, and you know, I always thought, wow, you know, I'd love for my children, you know, to, to listen to this because it's actually incredible audible. It's almost like a theatrical thing and just sort of, you know, have that template offered to them of like this incredible, um, meaningful design. And it's not a denominational thing at all. It's not like a, you know, Catholic thing or Jewish thing. It's just sort of like, it all makes sense. Wow. You know, that feeling is invaluable. It all makes sense. You know? Those are all awesome suggestions. I'll make sure those are linked in the show notes as well. Um, And again, as last time as well, thank you so much for sharing today your story, your vulnerability, and your new mission. I, of course, would encourage anyone listening, especially if anything resonated with you in this episode, to grab a copy of your book that will be linked in the show notes, but of course, also available anywhere books are sold. Any parting advice for the audience, audience and listeners today? Just if there is that little rustle um, inside of a yes to anything that we've discussed, that you honor that, you know, and you move towards it because there's never been more support for that courageous journey, you know, they call it the hero's journey or the heroine's journey, and that we all need you, you know, we all, I need you to, to move in that direction that I, I know this is like this paradoxical experience where we each have our own work to do and we get to do it together if we want to, you know, we get to be held, um, in this ever growing, you know, kind of sociocultural milieu where, where it's okay to want to grow and expand. And it's okay if it looks kind of funky sometimes, and maybe, you know, worse than that, that we make space for each other, um, to take ownership and to take personal responsibility and to really each step into a kind of power that can only come from owning all of our vulnerable parts. So thank you so much for, for <laughs> trusting me, you know, to have me on and have these kinds of conversations. I'm such an admirer and um, so grateful, you know, to, to be in this space with you. 
Thank you for sharing. And thanks to all of you for listening and sharing one of your most valuable assets, your time with us today. We're so glad that you did. And I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.